I would like now to get into the book of Revelation. Make sure that's working here. And uh, for those of you who aren't with me, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been, you know, for several weeks, we've been going through the book of Revelation. And last time I was here, we talked about this dragon and these beasts. We talked about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. And I find it real interesting, like in chapter 13, we see beasts and dragons. And in chapter 14, we see a lamb. I don't think it's a coincidence that we go from this vicious, devouring, evil beast to a lamb. I think the scripture is trying to make this dichotomy. We've got the evil empire, the beast, which I pointed out to you, and it's minions. Laura, look it up. Minions. And we've got... And we've got a lamb, precious, sweet. We've got selfish and wicked versus selfless and sacrifice. We've got evil versus pure. It's as big a contrast as you can get. And when I see things like that in the scripture, I know they're not coincidental. All right, so after we see those contrasts, we get into the text, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked... And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Another contrast. We had the mark of the beast, 666, and now we have this 144,000 with their father's name written on their foreheads. I don't know what that represents. I, I doubt there's really going to be a tattoo that you can see with your physical eye, but maybe there is. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. But the contrast... Those who serve and worship the beast get the 666. They get the mark of the beast. And those who serve and worship God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, they get the mark of God. Two camps, cleanly divided, right up the middle. And it mentions this 144,000. It says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So there's 144,000, and uh, I want to talk to you about some of the details about these guys. But first, there was something in there that really grabbed my attention. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Do you follow the Lamb wherever he goes? You realize when David penned the words... Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? To put it in our lingo, because he was following the lamb. Even if he goes through the valley of the shadow of death, there's nothing to fear there. He's following God. He's good. Wherever God has you, that's where you need to be. And that's good. And we've got to be the same. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. All right, so 144,000. Five things that I want you to know about the 144,000. The first one, they are Jews, not JWs. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. If they haven't knocked on your door, you're the only person who hasn't gotten knocked on the door. And you know what? They are to be commended. We should be doing that. We should be just as aggressive as they are knocking on people's doors. They do it right for the wrong reason. Their religion isn't the right religion. But their zeal is to be commended. So I don't want to knock the zeal, but the message is not right. Their message is not right. 
And in their message, even though this isn't as important as the other things they get wrong, I mean, they deny the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which is part of the gospel story. They deny the deity of Jesus. They have a bunch, a bunch of peculiar beliefs. But one of the things they, they teach people is 144,000 and only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will go to heaven. That's it. And so this passage is well known because the people who knock on everybody's door, their teaching is only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses will go to heaven. But how plain can it be that these are Jews and not Jehovah's Witnesses? Um, do, 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 do. These are the ones that follow God. In their mouth was found no deceit. They're without fault before the throne of God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. 144,000 of what? All the tribes of the children of Israel. And then in chapter 7 and 14, where these 144,000 are mentioned, the tribes are mentioned one by name. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. It names them. Dun, 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 dun. Is the Bible any clearer anywhere else about anything as to what it's saying? It's not. You can't make this say anything else. And yet somehow people do. So, the first thing about the 144,000 is they are Jews that follow Jesus. They are not JWs. The second thing about the 144,000, they are pure and holy. These are men of God to be admired. It says, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I asked you to be like the 144,000. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Is it too much to ask of men and women of God that we have mouths without deceit? In fact, if you have a mouth full of deceit, I will not believe you are a man of woman or God. I don't care if you're a pastor of a church. I will doubt that you're a true Christian if you have a mouth of deceit. So what makes these 144,000 different from other Christians? Nothing. They are Christians. Of course, they're virgins. But other than that, they're just good, godly people. It says, Steve, but they stand without fault before the throne of God. So will you. So do you. The Bible says, referring to Jesus, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see the mistakes you make and the sins you make. You've been forgiven. You're considered pure and holy. So we stand before his throne, pure and holy also. First thing, they're Jews. Second things, they're pure and holy, just like you're supposed to be. Third thing, it says that the first fruits in verse 4. These are first fruits. I don't know if you know what that means, but it means that there's more to follow. They're the first. That means more will come. We know that people will be saved during the tribulation. 144,000 isn't the limit of those who will be saved. It's the start of this time period, wherever we are in the tribulation. If this is in the middle, this is where it starts. Many, many more believers will come. Fourth thing, 
they're not the only ones who go to heaven. I told you the Jehovah's Witnesses taught that that's the case. But listen to what Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. So we know the 144,000 are Jews from this time frame, but we know also from this time frame there will be countless other nations and nationalities of people that will be saved also. So many that they can't be counted, standing before the throne and the Lamb. So this idea that only 144,000 go to heaven, it's not biblical. It's, they, they've got it wrong. All right. This leads to a question I have to answer. This whole thing about going to heaven and how people get saved. You know, I believe that there's going to be this thing called the rapture. And all believers will go to heaven at one time. And then the world will enter into tribulation. Now, there's a, a growing belief that says, no, the world will enter into tribulation. And then halfway through will be the rapture. And then there's another belief that says, no, the world will enter into tribulation. And then when it's all over, there'll be a rapture. Well, somebody's wrong. And you know what? Honestly, I don't care who's wrong. It really doesn't matter. I'm, walk, I'm following the lamb wherever he goes. And if he wants to walk me through the tribulation, he can walk me through the tribulation. I don't believe that's the case. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. But it doesn't matter. Because if you believe the tribulation comes first and then the rapture, but you're wrong and he calls at the beginning, you're going. Nobody's going to go up there and say, you can't take me now. You're supposed to come at the end. <laughs> we'll go and we'll go happy. Well, what about those who think it's at the beginning and they're wrong? Well, they'll be wrong. But if they follow the lamb wherever he goes, it won't matter. So I don't believe that, but it raises challenges to my perspective here. And I want to answer those challenges. Here's the challenge. Steve, if all the Christians are being taken to heaven at the beginning of the tribulation, how is anybody going to get saved during the tribulation? It says there's a multitude. How are they going to hear the gospel? Well, it's a good question. But the answer to that question isn't to move the rapture forward. I've got at least five ways people are going to get saved during the tribulation. First, I believe the um, rapture itself will cause people to be saved. There's all sorts of people who've heard about the rapture. Non-believers have heard about the rapture. We've told them. So, you're having a meeting in your office. There's six of you. You're standing at the presentation board talking about sales, and all of a sudden, you disappear and your clothes fall to the ground. Maybe they even hear a trumpet. I don't know if just believers will hear that trumpet or everybody will hear that trumpet. But all of a sudden, poof, you're gone. What's everybody going to do at that exact moment? Did you, where'd he go? What happened? So you open the door and there's people in the office screaming. And they're saying, Fred's gone. Where's Lucy? She, everybody's going to freak out. And then somebody's going to say, I heard about this. My cousin, Jack, I thought he was a, a religious nut, but he kept telling me, get saved before the rapture. This is the rapture. We missed it. Oh, no. Is there any hope for us? Well, my cousin, Jack, said, if I would just believe in Jesus and follow him, I'll be okay. So that's what I'm going to do. Saved. So I think the rapture itself will cause a lot of people to get saved. 
I also think sermons and DVDs, tracts and Bibles will be available to everybody. You know, when I vacate my premises, people are going to kick in the door looking for food. They can take my Bible with them. <laughs> it's okay. I told you, just us are on 90 networks. All the other pastors, we're all over YouTube. We're all over Facebook. You could probably read the whole Bible on Facebook. If not, hmm, that's a good project. have to think about that one. Third, there will be 144,000 we know are getting saved. Don't you think they'll preach the gospel? I bet you they will. And they'll lead others to the Lord. How about this one? Those two prophets we talked about. Remember them? They're going to do miracles. They're going to be public, probably on TV all the time. Everybody's going to hate them. But they're going to preach the gospel. And some people will get saved. And this one's pretty cool. Angels will preach the gospel. How cool is that? I don't know in the Bible that that's happened yet. Here's what verse 6 says. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. If this is literal, and why not assume it is, angels are going to, at least one, is going to fly through the sky over all the world preaching the gospel with a loud voice. Hey, we're getting down to the wire. God will do whatever he can to get people saved. Miracles are going to be pouring forth. Angels are going to be pouring forth. It's like the great race. We're almost out of time. And God's people are running for the finish line, trying to get as many people saved as possible before the end. It is going to be the great race. The gospel will be going forth. We'll be racing. But the false gospel will be going forth too. Not only will God's people be pouring it on, but Satan will also be pouring it on. He's going to try to foil God's plan and get as many people to hell as possible before he's out of time. It's the race. The dragons and those marked and the lamb and those marked. It's a competition. But we already know who's going to win. It's already written. It's in stone. But nevertheless, prophets, true prophets, will be preaching. We know of at least two, the two witnesses, but false prophets will also be preaching, and there will be many. Jesus said so. The great race. Angels will even be active on earth in a whole new way. Demons will also be active on earth in a whole new way. You know, these are going to be exciting times. Not necessarily pleasant times, but exciting times. Now, this great race... The headquarters for the false gospel is going to be in Babylon. Babylon is mentioned again in chapter 17. We're only in chapter 14. But it's introduced, her judgment, her destruction is introduced in chapter 14. So we have to take a look at it just because it's in our chapter. And then we'll look at it in more detail when we get to chapter 17. So here's what's going on with, with Babylon and her destruction. Verse 8. These, are, by the way, are the gateways of Babylon. This is what it looked like if you wanted to go visit Babylon. It's pretty cool. Their architecture was amazing. And these uh, creatures, many of them were lions, 
But if you were to look at all the gates, some of them actually look like dinosaurs. And it makes me wonder if dinosaurs were still roaming the earth during the days of the Babylonian Empire. See, we've been brainwashed to think that dinosaurs were millions of years ago. No, the world isn't even millions of years old. The world's only a few thousand years old. Job, in the book of Job, he talks about dinosaurs. So we know dinosaurs were on the earth with people from the biblical account. But when did they go away? A friend of mine, Michael Ronstadt, you know the Ronstadt name. One of the reasons they're so well-known, of course, is Linda Ronstadt. It's his sister. But they're also well-known in Tucson because they've been here forever. They've been here for many generations. And so Michael said that the, the natives in Tucson used to talk about this giant bird that could carry people away. And they described it, we would call it a pterodactyl. And this only goes back maybe five generations. So things, you know, aren't what we've been taught on Discovery Channel or the History Channel. We've got, you're welcome, we've got dinosaurs on these walls. So, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she, was ma she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, what does that mean? She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Simply put, she has influenced and corrupted the world. That's just simple. She has influenced and corrupted the world. Somebody came up to me yesterday after I gave this message at Beth Sar Shalom and said, you know, the United States has a lot of influence in the world. She said, is it possible that the United States is Babylon? I said, well, I suppose it's possible. I don't think so, but you never know. I'm thinking it says Babylon. It means Babylon. But it is possible it doesn't. We do have a lot of influence. But whatever it's referring to, it says her fornication. Now, fornication means um, immoral sexual activity. That's what it means. And that morality is written in the Bible. Nowadays, apparently, there is no such thing as immoral sexual activity. Homosexual marriage has been recognized in, what, 30 states or something like that? And our Supreme Court, any day now, will come out and tell us whether it's going to be the law of the land for all states. I've been praying, praying hard that it won't. God forbids it. It's not right. We'll see what the world does, what, what we choose to do, but it's immoral. Bruce Jenner, he thinks he's a girl. And you can't even be politically correct and communicate in English. Because if I say he thinks he's a girl, I've just offended the transgender community calling him a him. But listen, if I've got a potato in my cupboard and I shave off all the skin and paint it orange and stick a tail on it because my recipe calls for carrots, I've now got a carrot. No, I don't. I have a potato. I know he's hurt and he's confused, but he's hurt and confused. He's not right. He can change his shorts for a skirt and put on makeup, and that makes him a man with a skirt on and makeup who's hurt and confused. 
He's not a woman. There's nothing he can do to be a woman. He can have fake breasts put on and cut off his manly parts and have all the surgery he wants. He's still a man. Because we have not yet learned how to take out all of our DNA and chromosomes and replace them. So there you have it. Fornication refers to improper sexual behavior, which seems to be taking the world by storm right now. So maybe we're at the beginning of the start of all this stuff. But when it says her fornication, it's talking about spiritual fornication and physical fornication. What do I mean by spiritual fornication? In the Old Testament, Israel is considered God's bride. So they're married. So when Israel worships other gods, it's like Israel is committing adultery against God. That metaphor carries through the whole Bible. So when it says her fornication, it's talking about all the idolatry and all the false religion of the false gospel I was telling you about. But interesting enough, and you know I've done a lot of research on ancient religions and stuff, almost all the religions, and I'll say almost all because I can't think of one that doesn't, but I don't know them all. Almost all of them had sex as part of their religion. And it was illegal or illicit sex. You know, um, temple prostitution, on and on and go, as part of their religion. In America, our religion is secularism, and sex is still part of it. And of course, we're taking it away from the way God said it should be. Which is very interesting, because even from a, a pragmatic standpoint, when secular people interview married people who are monogamous, and have been faithful to their lives on satisfaction in relationships and satisfaction in the bedroom, the monogamous people who are faithful to their spouses always rate the highest in happiness, in satisfaction. All these people who are looking for pleasure, contrary to God's plan, never find it. Their satisfaction is always lower. So people will call us prudish and call us religious freaks, but we're following the maker's design and we're happier. So it's very pragmatic also. So we've got this metaphor for, for fornication. Then in verses 9 through 12, those verses explain that those who get the mark of the beast, like Babylon, will also suffer from God's judgment. So it lumps them all into one category. And the verbiage used to describe God's judgment on Babylon it's worth looking at. We're going to take a look. And those who receive the mark of the beast. Verses 10 and 11. It says, He shall be... Oh, that's not where I want to be. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The judgment of Babylon and those who receive the mark of the beast will be tormented in brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. Many people today are abandoning the concept of an eternal hell. They don't feel it's consistent with the love of God. However, the verbiage used about hell makes it impossible to avoid the concept and still be faithful to the authority of God's word. I've got five other passages of scripture that will make that case and that point very well. I have debated this. I have researched this. 
I have argued this. I don't think the other camp has a leg to stand on. I think you'll agree with me after you hear these passages of Scripture. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus is talking to wicked people who have rejected him at the end of days. And he says, Depart from me into the everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. That word everlasting, let me tell you what it means. It means everlasting. People often say, oh, the Greek means this or the Hebrew means that. And if you just look at the Greek, it doesn't really mean that. Yes, it does. The exact same Greek word is used in John 3.16. The exact same word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What does that word everlasting mean? Everlasting. If it doesn't mean it in Matthew 25, it doesn't mean it in John 3.16. If they're not going to be in hell forever, we're not going to be in heaven forever. Mark 9.43. If your hand causes you to sin, again, this is Jesus talking, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Now, obviously, he doesn't literally want people to cut off their hands. He's making a point about the severity of hell. That's why he's using the severity of the practice to point us to the severity of hell. And how severe is hell? It's the fire that shall never be quenched. Never. So now this is our third passage of scripture that uses eternal language to speak of hell. Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Remember, Jesus said the people who rejected him are going to that same place, who will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't like the concept of an eternal hell, but I'm not going to stop believing what the scripture says based on something I don't like. And if I don't like it, and God does like it, the problem's with me. See, we're always challenging God. What's he think he's doing? He, he knows what he's doing. He's the just one, not me. He's the loving one, not me. He's the fair one, not me. So if I find fault with something God's doing, Somebody's got a fault. And it's me. There's something skewed in the way we look at the world if we find fault with God for sending people to hell. Daniel 12, 2. We looked at the New Testament. Let's go to the Old Testament because the message has been in the entire Bible. It's not, not something new. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Same thing. Everlasting life is compared to everlasting shame and contempt. If they're annihilated, it's not everlasting shame and contempt. They're gone. It just doesn't work. You can't get around it. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burning? I'm often asked, often, how a just, loving God 
could send people to hell for eternity? I don't know. One of the things I like to tell people is what makes you think he's loving and just? They don't expect to hear that from a pastor. I don't doubt it, but I'm challenging them. How do you know he's loving and just? Well, the Bible says so. It does? Yeah. Well, it also says hell is real and eternal. So why do you believe the one and not the other? Ah, oh, we take the part we like and the part we understand and discredit the part we don't like and don't understand. We can't do that. We've got to take the whole thing. So how can a just and loving God send people to hell for eternity? I don't know. I don't understand a lot of things about God. This is one of those things I don't know. I do know, though, that if I have a problem with it, the problem's me. Perhaps our sense of justice is skewed. When we think about, we say it's not fair, it seems too harsh. Perhaps our entire perspective is off when it comes to the enormity and horror of rejecting the goodness and love of God. Sadly, this last week, an evil man went into a church, spent an hour with them, and then murdered nine of them. He should go to heaven forever, right? Because he's a good guy. That guy flatly rejected the goodness of God. When you take it to its logical extreme, that's what counter-God looks like, anti-God looks like. It looks like that. God has presented to the universe the dragon or the lamb. Goodness, righteousness, holiness, no deceit in the mouth, purity, versus everything else. Choose. If somebody says, I don't like that, what do you do with them? I don't want Jesus. Okay. You, you can make that choice. I think our sense of justice is skewed. I think we lessen the enormity and horror and the consequences of what it really means to reject the goodness of God and the love of Christ. There's a passage of scripture that addresses this probably better than any in the Bible. And yet in all these arguments, I've never heard anybody ever go to this passage. So now you'll have it in your arsenal, and also to help you deal with this topic yourselves, because it's one we wrestle with. Here's what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10. I'm starting in verse 28. Anyone who disobeys the law of Moses is put to death without mercy when judged guilty from the evidence of two or more witnesses. Okay, what this means, the law of Moses said you shall not commit murder, and if you do, if there's two or more witnesses, you get executed. There's no, you know, lifetime in jail. There's no mercy. You've committed murder, you are to be executed. And the law of Moses, which is from the Old Testament, there's a lot of things people could be executed for. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Well, let me read the rest and then we'll, we'll detail it. What then of those who despise the Son of God, who treat as a cheap thing the blood of God's covenant, which purified them from sin, who insult the spirit of grace. Just think how much worse is the punishment they will deserve. 
If the punishment for disrespecting Moses is death, what's the punishment for thinking the sacrifice of Christ is worthless and, and despising his grace? If you despise Moses, you get executed. What do you get if you despise Jesus? Shouldn't the consequences be even worse? Don't we think it's fair to execute a murderer? Don't you want to see that guy from Caroline is executed? I do. I don't mean I want to watch it. I'm not gory. But he deserves to die for what he did. Well, what is Moses compared to Jesus? You can't even put him on the same scale. In, in Hebrews it says that the, the, the builder of the house has, has much more honor than the house. And Moses is equated with one and Jesus with the other. The idea is a man who builds a house versus the house. How much more valuable and praiseworthy is the man over the house? It's almost like the house is worthless compared to the man. Well, if Moses is the house, Jesus is the builder of the house. And if the consequences for rejecting Moses are death, which we think is the worst of all possible consequences, what are the consequences for rejecting Jesus? That's what this passage is saying. It's a, well, as the passage says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, which, in my opinion, would not be true if there was no hell. And I say eternal hell because to me that's the same thing. You know what? If Adolf Hitler stands before God and God says you're bad and annihilates him, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. In my opinion and apparently in God's opinion. Our ability to appreciate or understand an eternal hell should not come into the equation. It does. The question is simple. What does the Bible teach? It seems fairly obvious that those who reject God will spend eternity in hell. But gospel means good news. No one has to go to hell. We forget that part. Hell's not fair. Hell's not good. Hell's not right. Then don't go. I don't want you to go either. In fact, God doesn't want you to go. He sent his son to die for you so you don't have to go. Don't go. Nobody has to go. Rather than struggling with trying to understand the love of God versus the judgment and justice of God, we should focus on the salvation of God. Hell can and should be avoided. Jesus died for our sins. If we repent of our sins and trust Jesus, we will be saved. However, there are people we know and love who might not go to heaven, who might go to hell. What can we do about that? Two things. Share the gospel with them. Don't be intimidated or embarrassed. You're trying to save them from hell. What's the worst that can happen? They might make fun of you. That's a fair exchange. They also might believe you and get saved. Two options. The first one is share the gospel. And why stop at your friends and family? Share it with everybody. Share the gospel. Let's get on that race. Get more people into the heaven side of the tally chart before it's too late. That's the first thing. What's the second thing? Pray. And I know you do this. I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Pray. Pray that they'll be saved. Pray that they'll repent. Pray that they'll see it's black and white. It's good versus evil. It's salvation. It's heaven versus hell and the devil. It's a no-brainer. Pray that their eyes will be opened and their hearts will be softened to receive the gospel. 
fact, what I'd like to do right now is I'm done. I would like for you guys to come up. But give us a couple of minutes of silence. If you want to strum a little, that's fine. I want you to pray now for your loved ones and your friends that don't know Jesus. And if you have an enemy that doesn't know Jesus, I want you to pray for them too.